0: You're listening to the Desperation Podcast. This message comes from our 2014 Desperation Conference, Jesus Reigns. For more information, visit us at desperationonline.com. Let's look at Luke chapter 15. Now before we look at Luke 15, I'm going to give a few minutes of introduction on it. Now this this message, this passage, Luke 15, is for people like me. And what I mean by people like me, when I was a teenager, when I was 16 years old, I was really dedicated to the Lord. I mean, I really loved Jesus. But I seemed like I was failing continually. I had this crisis. I loved him, and I really wanted to go all wholehearted, but I kept failing. And I kept stumbling. And I would, you know, just draw back in this confusion of, Lord, is it possible for somebody in their teen years to be sincere and to actually walk this thing out? And it was Luke chapter 15 that really marked my life in my late teen years. And I believe it's one of the high points of Jesus' teaching in the whole Bible. Luke chapter 15, and I want to urge you to read it over and over and over. There's three parables. And the message of these three parables is very uh, is the same. Jesus says the same thing in different ways, three different times. Not only am I want to encourage you, uh, I want to highlight Luke 15 to you, because if you not if you if you not made this chapter a priority, I just want you to say to yourself, "Note to self: I am not going to go forward without me really living in Luke chapter 15." I am determined that I'm going to go forward and I'm going to saturate myself in this chapter. Number two, that as you are effectively wanting to reach other people and minister to them, others, teens in your high school, some of you will be going to college in the next year or two in your college campuses. I want to tell you Luke chapter 15 is one of the most significant passages in order to minister to other people. Now, I've been preaching on this passage and talking about it to individuals for 40 years. And 40 years later, I am more excited about Luke 15 than I was even 40 years ago when it first changed my life in my teenage years. Now, here's a spiritual principle. If we feel dirty, we will live dirty. If we feel clean, we will live clean. And what I mean by that, let me break that down a little bit. As a believer, we love Jesus. But if we feel dirty in God's sight, because we evaluate our relationship to Jesus through our failure, rather than through what he accomplished on the cross and through the truth of his personality. I want to say that again. Here's how a believer feels dirty. I mean a sincere believer. We... Evaluate our relationship to Jesus through our failure, what we're not doing or what we're doing wrong rather than evaluating our relationship to Jesus based on two things. Number one, the truth of what he accomplished on the cross. I mean, he made a perfect provision for weak and broken people to have confidence in his sight, but it's not only the finished work of the cross. There's another point. It's the personality of God. It's what kind of emotions God has. It's what his personality is like. It's not only that he provided salvation for us, it's how he feels when he looks at us. See, some people have this idea. Well, Jesus went to the cross and died, so now the Father has to forgive us. You know, Jesus presents the blood... And the father's like, well, I don't know, Mike Bickle, he did it again. Father, my blood. Okay, one more time. That's not how it works. Yes, the blood of Jesus is what makes the difference and gives us our security and this gift of perfect righteousness. But it's more than that. God the father, his personality is filled with delight for his people. He is not reluctant to forgive us. He delights in forgiving us. He likes it. In Micah chapter 7, verse 18, I don't have the passage on the notes. One of my favorite verses. How many of you know you can have a hundred favorite verses? I say, this is one of my favorite verses. I got a hundred of them. So please don't count them up and ask me what my real favorite one is. But this is one of my favorite verses. Micah 7, verse 18 when the scripture says, the Lord says this, I delight in showing mercy. I like it. I enjoy it. I don't do it reluctantly. It's who I am. I delight in giving mercy to my people in their weakness and in their brokenness. Beloved, if we feel dirty in the presence of God, we'll live dirty. We'll live with a guarded heart. We'll be approaching God, negotiating. Oh, God, forgive me one more time. I promise I won't do it. I swear I won't. Please, if you'll do this, I'll do that. If you'll do this, I'll do that. And the Lord says, stop. Stop. I don't want to relate to you based on, oh, God, if you forgive me, I promise, I promise, I never, I promise. No. I want to relate to you because of what my son did, not because of what you do, and because of who I am, says the Lord, not because of what you feel like right now. And I want you to feel clean in my presence because I've made a way for you to stand before me clean. You know, there's two different positions and you have to listen carefully on this one. Some people view themselves as sinners who struggle to love God. Other people, this is the right way, view themselves as lovers of God, but they still struggle with sin. Let me say that again. That may sound a little confusing. You are not just a sinner trying, struggling to love God. Oh, I'm so wicked. I'm so broken. I'm so evil. Oh, I'm trying. I'm trying. You're not a sinner who's trying to love God. That's not your identity in God's presence. You are a lover of God who is still struggling with sin. So when I present myself before God, my identity... I mean, who I am in God's eyes. I go, here it is, Lord. Me again. The one who loves you. My love is weak. My love is frail, but I got good news for you. Weak love is not false love. Because my love is weak, it doesn't mean that my love is false. My love for Jesus is weak. It needs to grow. But it's genuine even while it's growing. Your love isn't only real when it's as mature as Paul the Apostle. Your love for Jesus is real even when it's young and growing. So weak love is not false. You're not a hypocrite because your love is weak. You're sincere. You're a lover of God. Yes, you struggle with sin. But before God, your identity is a lover of God with the gift of righteousness. The devil comes and says, you're not a lover of God, you hopeless hypocrite. You are a sinner. That's your identity before God. Yeah, I know you struggle to love, but you're never going to succeed anyway. Look at your track record. Well, I don't relate to God on my track record. I relate to God on his track record. Not just what Jesus did on the cross. Yes, that's the... Ultimate, But I mean God's personality as well because that's what I want to focus on. In Luke 15, Jesus says, let me tell you what my father's heart is like. Not just that you're legally saved, but it's a real relationship and he really enjoys you. Not only after you mature, but he actually enjoys you while you're maturing. When I discovered that in my late teens. Not in discovered in a deep way. But a, a beginning way. I was so excited. I thought you like me. Not just you love me because Jesus died. You actually like me. And when I began to feel God liked me. And he knew everything about me. It's like Misty song. God's not shocked when we stumble into sin. We might be shocked, but he isn't. I remember one time, I was about 18 years old, and I did one of my many sins, and and I said, oh God, I can't believe it, I did it again. And I could imagine, I didn't hear the Lord say anything, but I could imagine him saying, hey little guy, there's a whole lot more where that came from. Don't be so surprised. I'm not shocked the Lord could have said to me. I know everything about you. And I want you. I want you forever. And you're real right now in relationship. Your relationship with me isn't real only when you grow up spiritually. Your relationship is real right now. Beloved, when I began to connect with that, oh, it did something, something shifted in me. Here's what happened. When I sinned, and I sinned many more times, I ran to him instead of from him. See, many of my friends, when they sinned, they would run from him and go try to fix it up or do something to prove to God they were sincere. And they would put themselves on spiritual probation for like three months. You know, they would stumble in some sin, many types of sins. I don't want to break down well. There's all kinds of options. They would run away. Kind of wallow in their sorrow for a while. And you know what? A lot of people, they love the self-indulgence of condemnation. Meaning they like to, oh, I'm so wicked. I'm so bad. I feel so rotten. And they actually, it's self-indulgent for them to, they feel like somewhere they're winning God's favor if they just like for three months I'll suffer. I just won't enjoy worship. I won't believe you for anything. I won't have confidence. I'll just suffer. Then I know you'll know I'm sincere. Beloved, that's a lie of the devil. There is no value in God's sight of you putting yourself on probation for three months spiritually when you blow it. We don't run from him, and many young believers do that. Well, many old believers do. They run from him, and they try to figure out a way, or they just kind of, you know, the the crisis of their sin kind of like mellows out in their thinking. And a few weeks or a few months later, they come back and they go, "It's me again." Are you, do you God? Hello. They kind of sneak up on God, and it's me again. I love you. Are we back in business, beloved? I have good news for you. You were never out of business from God's point of view ever. And the devil wants us over here in this position. I mean, he he really wants us in this position over uh, kind of wallowing in our self-condemnation and kind of feeling good about feeling bad. I know that sounds weird, but feeling good. Like, well, this feels like God will really take me seriously. I have good news for you. He takes you seriously the day you were born again. He gave you the gift of righteousness. He put a willing spirit in you that has a yes in your spirit to obey him. I don't follow through on the yes in the way I want to, but the yes is real. And when I come up short, 40 years later, I still come up short. Here's what I do with the Lord. I don't rationalize my sin. I don't say, God, it's not really sin. I mean, there are other people who did this. No, I say, no, it is sin. What I did, sin. I'm not blaming it on anybody. I did it. No blame shifting. Then I look at him right before him. I go, I repent of it. Meaning I renounce it. I set my heart to war against it. And I, then I thank him that the righteousness of Jesus cleanses me. Then, beloved, I do this for real. I push delete. It's over. And within five minutes, father, here I am, the one that loves you. Your favorite one, here I am. Now every believer in history has the right to claim they're God's favorite one. Because he loves you in the way he loves his own son. So that makes you his favorite one. And my unrenewed thinking, my wrong thinking that is not in line with the word. When I send my unrenewed thinking and the devil's lies, I want to retreat. I want to run from him. I go, no, no. No, I'm going to say what the word says. I sin. I'm not going to blame shift. I'm not going to rationalize. I repent. I declare war. I receive your forgiveness. Thank you. I'm cleansed. Thank you that you enjoy me. Thank you. I'm real. I'm genuine. I push delete. And I mean it. Within five minutes. Trying to get it down to three minutes. But within five minutes, I am standing as a first-class citizen with confidence And I blew it five minutes ago, beloved, that's the way you live clean because I feel clean on the inside in his presence. And if you feel clean, it's not all based on feelings, but when you feel clean, you live clean. When you feel dirty, like many believers, you will live dirty. And the devil knows this. So he lies perpetually. Well, I told you we're not going to get through all these notes. And I don't intend to. But let's look at a few of them. Paragraph A. Paragraph A. Luke 15. Jesus gave three parables. They all have the same general message, but they approach it with a different angle. They give different insights into the same diamonds, different angles of the same diamond. I believe Luke 15 is one of the high points in Jesus' teaching. It's one of the highest revelations he gave in the whole of the Bible. The reason I say that, some people look at Luke 15, they go, oh, the prodigal son. Yeah, that's for baby Christians. I don't think this is just beginners only, Luke 15. I believe this is one of the high points of the revelation of God in the Bible from the lips of Jesus. In these parables... Jesus reveals how the Father pursues us. Beloved, he doesn't just tolerate you because Jesus died for you. He pursues you. He comes after you. He says, I want you. You're the one I want. You go, Lord, do you know what I did seven minutes ago? He goes, oh yeah, I know. And I know what you're going to do in the days to come. I know what you're capable of. I want you because I delight in you. He enjoys us. He feels affection for us. Paragraph B. The way we view God. Very important point. The way we think about God's heart. How he looks at us. How he feels about us. When we sin. is one of the most significant truths about your spiritual life. If when you sin... The God that you imagine is mostly mad and mostly sad when he relates to you. Your spiritual growth is going to be hindered greatly. Many people think of God as mostly sad or mostly mad when he relates to his people. I have good news for you. He's mostly glad when he relates to people in Christ. He really is. He's mostly glad. And I could talk on that for quite a while. I'm not going to right now. That's one of my favorite themes is that God is mostly glad when he relates to his people. Paragraph C. What do you think? Just think about your heart for a second. Think about your friends. What do you think is the greatest emotional need a human being has? The absolute greatest emotional need. You may say, huh, his greatest emotional need. Hmm, I don't know. Here's my opinion. And I really think I'm right. I really believe this. I've I've thought on this for 20 years. I mean, reading lots of Bible verses, hearing a lot of teaching, and I've never had any Bible verse or any teaching persuade me that this next thing I'm saying isn't true. I believe the greatest emotional need you have, And the greatest emotional need of the people you're trying to minister to is this. The need to have the assurance, the assurance that God enjoys you. That is the deepest need in the human spirit. I wrote a book, actually with David's sister, called The Seven Longings of the Heart. And I identify seven longings, seven emotional longings and cravings of the human heart And I'm not going to go into those seven, but I believe the absolute primary greatest need of your heart is the longing to have the assurance. Not the kind of, I hope it's true, the assurance, the rock solid confidence that he enjoys you. When that longing is answered even a little bit. That answer is, even a little bit, it will dynamically change the way you carry your heart before God. And if you buy into what I just said, you will invest your time filling your mind, not all your time, but I mean the time you spend in the Word, filling your mind with what the Bible says about how God feels about you. I encourage young people over the years... Study the scriptures and mark every verse, let's put a mark by it, where it reveals how God feels about his people. It's a remarkable study. I gave myself to that over the years. I want to know how God feels about people. Not just what he'll do through them with great works of ministry. I'm into that too. But I'm saying different than what he'll do through you. Even what he'll do to you. I'm talking about how he feels feels about you in his emotions tomorrow I'm going to talk about David King David and David was called a man after God's own heart and tomorrow I'll make this point that being a man after God's own heart one point one thing about being a man after God's own heart or a woman after God's own heart is that David studied the emotions of God wasn't just that he wanted to obey God. He was a student of God's heart. I found out over the years, a, the little understanding I have, and I've, I've gained a lot, but it's still a little compared to how much is out there. I mean, the Bible's filled with this. My favorite subject. I mean, I love this subject. Studying how God feels. Oh, it excites me. I can't get enough of it. When I have a little bit of free time, I love to dive into that subject deeper. I read books on it. I study on it. I talk to people. I hear songs on it. How God feels. You were created to be delighted in by God. Because God isn't just a powerful creator. He's a father. He's relational. God's not just a powerful king. But he's a father And a bridegroom with desire. He doesn't just have power. He has desire. And a lot of us have focused on God's power. And I'm one of them. I love to focus on God's power. Other groups focus on God's wisdom. How wise. I'm one of those guys too. I love God's wisdom. But I tell you. I love his power and his wisdom. But I really love to study his desires. I mean it does something. Because we were made that way. It does something special. Paragraph D. Read Hebrews chapter 10, verse 19 and 22. I want you to notice the words that are related to the idea of confidence. It says in verse 19, therefore, having boldness. You could put the word confidence. Confidence is everything. The writer of Hebrews used the word boldness, but put confidence in just to make my point. We have confidence to enter God's presence. Verse 22. Let us draw near with full assurance. Let us draw near with confidence. Beloved, everybody's weak and broken in their flesh. The only reason we can draw near to the infinitely holy God is by the blood of Jesus. And because of his own personality. But I tell you, he wants us to have assurance. He wants us to have boldness. Those are other words for confidence. If we are confident in love, if we are confident in our heart that two things, that God loves us, even in our weakness, and that our weak love is actually real, God takes it seriously. My weak love is genuine. If I have confidence, God takes my love seriously, and I have confidence that he loves me in my brokenness, that confidence makes my heart powerful, powerful. I can stand before sin, I can stand before discouragement, before failure, and I can look it right in the eye and I say, I'm not quitting, I'm not drawing back, it's like Misty's song, if you don't quit, don't give up, don't give in, if you don't quit, you win. I can look at discouragement and failure right in the face and say, no, I have confidence. He likes me. And he believes I like him. And my love is real even though it's weak. Confidence is the opposite of rejection. Confidence is the opposite of shame and condemnation. Confidence is the opposite of uncertainty. If you left this room tonight. Now some of you already have this confidence. But if you left this room tonight with a shift. And you began began a journey of feeling confident. Beloved, your next years in your spiritual life will be dynamic. This one thing will shift everything in your life. I'm telling you. Confidence. The devil does not want you confident in the presence of God. He wants, he'll let you be sincere. As long as you're not confident. Because if you're sincere, but you feel shame, condemnation, despair, rejection, you're no... You're no threat to his kingdom. He doesn't like a sincere believer. He doesn't like our sincerity. But if he takes our sincerity and convinces us to be filled with shame, he's not threatened by our life and ministry. But you take a sincere young believer and you give them confidence by the written word of God when it says in the word about God, about the cross, and about the heart of God. That young believer... I mean, they may be, be in a school environment filled with sin and temptation. They may be ignored by everybody. They're not popular. They're not gifted on the, on the choir or the music or the football team or the soccer team. They don't have any of those gifts. They don't have a lot of, of a popularity. But they feel confident with God. They could change their school. I'm telling you, they could change their school. The devil does not want you confident. Well, he don't want you sincere. But if you're sincere, but you're condemned, you're not a real threat to him. But you get confident. Now, there's only one way you get confident. Only one way. By taking what the word of God says. We take what God says and we speak it back to God. God, you said you delighted me. God, you said that I am the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. God, you said that I have boldness in your presence if I only understand it's my right to be bold in your presence. Here's what the devil wants. He wants you to evaluate your life by your fears. He wants you to evaluate your life by your failures. And he wants you to evaluate your life by your feelings. If you're, I don't feel good in God's presence, the devil goes, I got you. I'm afraid and I'm just yielding to it. I'm not resisting fear. I'm just giving in and just, I'm afraid that's my confession. Then devil goes, I got you. I'm just a failure. I got you. But I have fears. I have failures. I have bad feelings. And I take the word of God. I say, I am who God says I am. And I am before the God that the Bible describes, the God according to the word of God. And I'm not going to go by my feelings. I'm not going to go by my failures. I'm not going to go by my fears. I'm going to reject them. I'm going to resist them. And I'm going to say what the word says about me. And I'm going to live in confidence. I may never be popular in my school. I may never be specially gifted. I may never stick out to other people. But I stick out in God's presence. And I feel the truth of it. Beloved. A man or a woman like that, a young man, young woman, 15, 16, 18 years old, you can change your school with that kind of attitude. The devil will do anything to keep that from being established in your heart. Paragraph E. There is no condemnation. Condemnation is the opposite of confidence. Condemnation is... You're in the wallowing here in the corner. Oh, I'm just quitting. I'm so bad. And again, we kind of sometimes feel good about feeling bad because we think somehow God goes, okay, okay, enough. You're suffering. I'll let you now out of probation. That is just religious foolishness. There is no condemnation, none, none in the presence of God. Now in the Greek, the word no means no. That's my Greek. There you have it. It doesn't say you're 97% free of confidence. I mean of condemnation. None. In the presence of God. Now the devil condemns us. He tells us you're a hypocrite. You'll never make it. You're a fake. God's angry at you. He's mostly disappointed in you. I say no. The word of God says there's no condemnation. None. None. I stand in confidence before him. Look at the next verse, Hebrews 12. Hebrews chapter 12. Satan is an accuser. That's one of the main descriptions in the Bible of Satan. He accuses you before God. Now he's accusing us before the presence of God. He stands before God's presence and says, They're liars. They're fakes. They're hypocrites. They don't ever follow through on what they say. They're not real. And Satan's demonic hosts are inspiring our minds with the accusations that Satan is making in the presence of God. So Satan's making them, but demonic spirits inspire these ideas in our mind. There's only one answer to those ideas. You say, It is written. The Word of God says, Satan, you're a liar. There is no condemnation. God delights in me. This is who I am. And beloved, you get confidence in your spirit. It will change everything. Because a condemned believer will never ever threaten Satan's kingdom. A a believer that lives in perpetual condemnation. Paragraph F, I've already said it. But the most important question. I believe in our spiritual journey. Is how we feel God How we think God feels about us. Most believers I know think God is mostly mad or mostly sad when He relates to them. In other words, He's mad. I'm gonna break you and I'm gonna teach you this time, you little rebel. That's how He looks at it because we're imagining, we're hearing the voice of an angry authority figure in our life. Maybe it's a parent, maybe it's a coach. Whatever. There's many authority figures, but sometimes those authority figures are very angry, and we make this unconscious shift, and we hear the voice of that angry parent when we're relating to God, and we think it's God talking to us. You little rebel, you little hypocrite, that's the last time I'm telling you. They think that's what God is feeling. Because they think, well, that's how my parents feel towards me, or my coach or my teacher or whatever. Or maybe you don't think he's mad. You think he's sad. Like, you know, I really love you, but you're so disappointing. I mean, I love you. You break my heart every day. You just break my heart. You did it again. Like, I don't want to break your heart, God. I promise I don't. Well, Mike, I know you love me, but you just break my heart all the time. Ah, I'm going to go over here and figure something out because I can't deal with this. The human heart wasn't made to be able to live in that tension and prosper spiritually. The devil knows it. The devil knows it. Well, I have good news for you. Paragraph G. Hebrews 1. Jesus was anointed with the oil of gladness more than any other human being that ever walked on the earth. Jesus' personality... He had more gladness in his personality. I don't mean a silly glibness about, I don't mean he was silly and glib. That's not what I mean. He was glad. When he looked at the, in his eyes at people, they felt his welcome. They thought, you know, I could picture the little kids. You know, they Jesus is coming in town. And there's a big crowd. The little kids, the little six-year-olds. Seven-year-olds, they run up, and they see the Pharisees. They go, oh, ah, ah. <laughs> they run away. Then they come up, and they see the disciples, these little 20-year-old apostles, a little self-righteous on the front end. They go, ah. Eh, the kids go, nah, that's not good either. And they look around, and they see that young man, that 30-year-old preacher. And they look, at, they make eye contact with him. They go, I don't know him. The little six-year-old says, I like that guy. He likes me. And they would sneak through. He'd go, Hi. Hi, how, how are you? And he would look at him. I, that's my theory. That the anointing of gladness on this man's life. Hebrews 1 says, he was more glad than any man. All of his companions means all the, the entire human race. No man ever had the gladness Jesus walked in. And of course we know, he was a perfect reflection of his heavenly father. Look at Psalm 16. Here's what David said. Again, tomorrow we're going to look more on David. David is the theologian of God's emotions. That's what I call him. The Old Testament theologian of the emotions of God. I mean, he was the great warrior king. He was the lovesick worshiper. But he was the student of God's emotions. A young man. And I determined as a young man, I'm going to be a student of God's emotions like David. I don't want to just be a great warrior king in the spirit. I do. I want to be a lovesick worshiper, but I want to be a student of God's emotions like David. I want to be like this. Beloved, I believe this is the David generation. I really believe this. I believe God is raising up young Davids, men and women, in their teens right now. And anointing them with music and songs. Not only that. Not everybody's anointed with that. Like, for instance, me. We have... David was talking about it. We have 50 worship teams at IHOP in Kansas City. 50 worship teams. So we have about a 1,000 people on our staff, and most of them are singers and musicians. I think there's seven or 800, some number. I don't know the real number, but hundreds. And so we do 24-hour worship. We've got a couple prayer rooms going because we have so many worship teams. I am the worst singer and musician at IHOP. I can't sing. I can't play. I can't dance. Well, actually... I think I can. They just won't let me do it publicly. Misty, this beloved Misty who's been working with me for 15 years, she helped start IHOP with David Sisters. David's Sisters also helped me start IHOP 15 years ago. Misty, she's the head of all the singers and musicians. She has, I have failed auditions four times. And Misty said, don't come back again unless I call you. So here's my point. This David generation, I think, are singers and musicians and the creative spirit. But that isn't, you, maybe you're like me. Maybe you can't do that stuff. But you can still have a heart after God like David, that worshiping warrior, that lovesick worshiper, that student of God's emotions. Maybe you can't sing and all those things, but you can give yourself to that. So I decided to, to do that part and just uh, cry when Misty leads in worship. Okay. But David... Psalm 16, look at what David says about God. Look at this. This this was mind-boggling to some of the people of his day, I believe. He said, God, Psalm 16, verse 11, in your presence is the fullness of joy. And again, he doesn't mean just a silly, giddy joy. Some people, when they think joy, they just think that means being silly. God's joy is a substantial sense of well-being and confidence and power in his emotions of the fullness of goodness is going to happen. I mean, joy is bigger than just a little emotion here or there. God's the fullness of it in his personality. And at God's right hand, that's the throne of God. The throne of God, the right hand of God, is the epicenter of spiritual pleasure that will fill the created order in the age to come. Oh, The whole created order of the redeemed, I'm I'm talking about, will be filled with joy and spiritual pleasure. The very epicenter of joy is the heart of God. It's the opposite of what people think about God. Look at paragraph H. I have a bunch of verses here. I'm not going to really read them, just one of them. But here's my point. The Old Testament prophets powerfully established that God has a heart of rejoicing. I mean, read those verses on your own. These are Old Testament prophets. This is before Luke chapter 15. I'm not going to get to Luke chapter 15 very far. I'll talk about it for just a minute. But you know the chapter anyway. I'm more just pointing you to the chapter because it's pretty self-evident what this chapter means. It was November 1995, so a long time ago. Was that 15, 17 years ago, something like that. Look at Isaiah 62. I had a very powerful dream in November 1995. And in this dream, I was in the auditorium where we have our big conference at the end of every year where we have like 25,000 young people come. And I was in that conference, and it had like 25,000 young people, just like it's happening. But 17 years ago, none of that was happening. And, but I was kind of seeing the future, and I'm in this big auditorium. And the place is packed, 20, 30, 40,000 young people. And I'm standing there in the dream, and the audible voice of God comes from over here in the right, from the right of me, and it was like thunder. He said this, Tell them, I call them Hephzibah. Tell them the Lord delights in them. And so I proclaimed over this massive number of young people Hephzibah, Hephzibah, which is the Hebrew word which means I delight in you. God said, Tell them I delight in them. And they were all 18 years old, 21 years old, 22 years old, and every year because here's what happened in the dream that that declaration so moved their heart with became an impartation it shifted their emotional chemistry that's a strange way to say it but it shifted their heart in one moment the declaration not everybody was changed but as i said this in the dream people 18 year olds 15 year olds 21 year olds They were instantly shifted and they felt God delighted in them. And I tell you, when you feel God delights in you, even in your weakness, the confidence that rises up in you, you add that godly confidence with godly sincerity, I tell you, the devil cannot manage you. He cannot hem you in. He cannot control you when you have confidence in your spirit. So, every year, Because of that dream, I do it every year. I say, have some more. I don't know when the big year is going to happen. Where everybody, you know, I I don't know what's going to happen. But I do it every year by faith. And there's always some people that come and say, my life was shifted and changed by that one declaration. Now, I'm going to do that over you right now. Then I'm going to go just a few more minutes on Luke 15. I'm going to be just brief on it. Because, again, you can read it on your own. I, I think I've set it up. Uh, I've got your attention and you say, Hey, I'm going to make Luke 15. One of my number one chapters, not just for your own heart, but for your ministry to your friends and family members, your father, if he loves God and he's struggling, he needs Luke 15, your 14 year old brother. He needs Luke 15 that popular person at school that's a little bit angry and proud, and but they're a believer, but they're not acting like what They need Luke 15 is what they need. And so not only do I need it, I know all the people I love need it. So I've, I'm fanatical about Luke 15. Again, I believe it's the high point, not the only high point, but it's one of the high points of Jesus' teaching. Well, I'm going to pray over you first before I take just a, a, a few short more minutes on Luke 15. Father, I declare right now over young people like that dream in 1995. I declare Hefzibah. God calls you Hefzibah. That's the Hebrew that says your name is I delighted you. Your name is I delighted you. Your name is I delighted you. And I break the power of shame. I proclaim Liberty to the captives of shame right now. Sincere believers held captivity to shame who are born again new creation believers. I proclaim liberty. I say you are the real deal even in your weakness. I say that you are his favorite one. Every believer could claim that. He likes you. He delights in you. Well, I believe a few of you I haven't seen the fullness of that promise from that prophetic dream. I woke up with the power of God resting on me. I tell you, I was just so touched for days by that prophetic dream. I have lots of dreams over the years, but most of them don't affect me in any major way like that. That one just affected me dynamically. And I can't get over this, and I don't want to get over it. But I have found other believers, they are really nervous about this truth. They don't like the idea they go away. People get confident in God, they will get casual in their compromise. I think it's the opposite. I think you get confident in God, you become radical in your love and your obedience for the Lord. I really believe it's opposite. Well, turn to page two. And again, we'll do this brief, just a little bit of this. Kind of give you the feel of it. And then you can read it on your own. Now, here's what's really significant about Luke 15. What's really significant about Luke 15 is Luke 14. I don't have that on the notes. But in Luke 14, it's Jesus' most radical call to discipleship and obedience. You can read that later on your own. Luke 14 is the most radical call to radical lifestyle. And the very next thing is Luke 15. He reveals how God feels about us. Because beloved, you could commit to be radical, Luke 14, but if you don't understand Luke 15, your radicalness will fizzle out quickly. I know a lot of folks, they call people to Luke 14, radical, radical, radical. I'm one of those folks, I love that call. But if you don't equip believers with Luke 15, After you've called them to obedience in Luke 14, that obedience is going to fizzle out in shame and rejection. And sometimes it will create such a negative impact that young believer, for years, they'll never try to be radical again. They go, nope, I tried it. I failed miserably. Because they did Luke 14 without Luke 15. So just think of that yourself. Youth pastors, young disciples, be bold to call them to radicalness 14 but tell them about the heart of the father, chapter 15. Well, here we are. Paragraph 8, verse 11 to 16. You know the story. The man has two sons. The younger son, I'll just tell you the story instead of read it to, to save time. The younger son says, hey, dad. Hey, I've got part of the family inheritance. The dad was a like a billionaire. I mean, he was multi-billionaire, whatever. It doesn't tell it, but he had a lot of money. The younger son said, hey, I get some of that inheritance, right? The dad said, well, yeah, but only after I die. And the kid was kind of like, well, dad, I really need the money Could you hurry up and die. I mean, I actually need that money because I got plans right now. I want to go out and have a ball and I'm youthful. So the father, he said, okay, you know what I'm going to do? And the older brother was shocked. And the father said, okay, here, I'll give you your million dollars right now. Before I die, here's a million bucks. Take it, it's yours. And that kid goes, thanks, dad. And that kid ran out. And it says he went to a far away land and he wasted all of his money on prostitutes and crazy living. And I mean, he really made a mess of his life. Wasted all the money. Lost it all. Then a famine hit the land and he's filled with shame. He's broke. He went through a million dollars. That's a made up number. The famine hits the land. He is so poor, he can't even get a job. So some guy says, here, I'll let you go feed the pigs. And by the way, your payment is, you can eat what the pigs eat when you feed them. That's your salary for the week. So this Jewish boy is feeding pigs, and that's another story for another time. And he's eating what the pigs eat because he's so filled with shame, he can't go back home. He's got a very wealthy dad. Then paragraph B, verse 17, he came to himself. Now, when Jesus said he came to himself, that means he said, I know who I am. I'm the son of a powerful man, a wealthy man. Beloved, we're children of the king. He came to his senses, and that in this context, and it makes it clear later, means he repented. He goes, I'm renouncing that crazy way of living. But now, he says, I'm such a mess. What am I going to tell my father? So they describe a little of what he tells. He thinks, I'm going to tell my father. Look at verse 18. Father, I really sinned. That's good. You should admit you sinned when you sin. I'm no longer worthy. Make me a hired servant. He's all mixed up. He says, let me work for what you give me. Beloved, in the grace of God, there are no hired servants. You either get it free or you don't get it. So he's still confused. He still wants to go back to the Father, gain some of the privileges, but he wants to earn them all. And that doesn't work. Paragraph C. Here's one of the greatest verses in the whole Bible, in my opinion. I mean one of the greatest verses. Luke chapter 15, verse 20. I underline this verse so many times I wore a hole an inch down through my Bible by circling this verse so many times. Not really. Okay, verse 20. Look what he said. I love this verse so much. The boy, he repents. He wasted all the money. He comes to his father. And while he was still a far, a great way off. Like the boy was, the father is, I picture him on the porch in the rocking chair chair at night as the sun's going down and he sees over the horizon, this man, but he has that certain walk that he knows. He goes, that's my son. He's on the porch every night that is, the text did not say that this is my addition to it. Looking for that son, because he knows the son is going to waste all the money because he knows his son. Matter of fact, he gave it all to his son, knowing what his son would do with it, because he knew he would gain his son in the end for permanently when the son came to his senses. So he's on the porch every night. From a long way, the first thing, he saw his son. Next thing, he had compassion. Next thing, he ran. Next thing, he fell on his neck. He hugged him. Next thing, he kissed him. So the father's there. He sees that boy walking just like his son walks. He goes, He's there. Here's the point. Look at number one. The father saw. The father is earnestly watching and longing for his people when they get off the path. He doesn't have a hammer in his hand waiting to crush you. He's longing with earnestness. He's ever watching with that heart of hope and love towards you. Or towards that other person. Whether we're, it's one day of compromise. Or a month or a year or a decade. It doesn't matter what the time frame is. He's longing. He says that's not what you were made to do. That's not really who you are. You're not a sinner who struggles to love. You're a lover of God who struggles with sin. And he watches for us. The father felt compassion. Well maybe our fathers feel anger. But the heavenly father feels tenderness. The father got up from the porch. I picture him on the rocket chair. He runs. Now in the ancient world, a father never stood up and ran in embrace to a rebellious son. The rebellious son would come, kneel down, you know, grovel in the dirt. Then the father would give some sentence like, okay, here's the sentence. Jesus said, my father's not like that. He's not like the custom of the day. He gets up and runs after you. Beloved, you take one step, he'll take ten. You t- he'll run after you. So the, the boy's going, oh no, dad's running. Yeah, oh no, and I can picture you backing up. The father runs, embraces him. I imagine the father's weeping with gratitude and kisses him with the affection of the full restoration of favor. Look at paragraph D, verse 21. Now let's go on to paragraph eight. The father said, verse 22, the son's waiting for the declaration. What is it? I mean, you got up and ran to me in tenderness. You kissed me. I know I'm in good. Things are going well. This is going better than I thought. What now what? You haven't said nothing. The father says, the best robe, the family ring, bring the sandals, kill the fatted cow. Let us eat and be glad. Let us be merry. You can put the word glad or joyful. My son was dead. He's alive. And the whole family, the whole gathering was filled with the gladness of God. In our context, in the New Testament setting, they all begin to be merry. Well, God gave us the best robe. The robe doesn't just, it just speaks of the garments of righteousness. But beloved, the robe speaks of dignity and honor and position and stature and favor. The robe is so many things. You can't earn the robe. He gives you not the robe in the back closet. He puts the best robe on you. And the robe didn't just mean acceptance. It meant dignity, status, honor. The best one. The one that's reserved for the the famous dignitary that visits your family. He's giving it to the son. Now, beloved, the son is only repented. He hadn't changed anything. He hasn't earned the money back. He hasn't changed anything. He's still filled with wrong ideas, wrong emotions. The very day he repents, he gets the full honor. That's how God responds to us. See, I would think he'd say, son, the aunt, the robe is yours. About a year or two. We'll see how you're doing. The robe is yours. You can hope for the robe. He says, no, within 24 hours. I mean, the day wasn't over. The robe was on the kid. The family ring. Now the family ring is the ability to execute the family wealth. The family ring meant the checkbook. It was the authority to use the family resources. The older brothers were dad, you gave him a million dollars. He blew it. You're giving him the checkbook again? Yes. How could you dare give him the checkbook? I see a gratitude in him. He is forever cured Of this determination to ignore me. He may still fail, but he is never on purpose gonna determine to ignore me. Puts the sandals on. The fatted calf. Now, the fatted calf was only for special occasions, but here's the good thing. Every time you and I acknowledge our failure before the Lord, and we say, Lord, I really did do it. I'm not pretending I didn't, I did it. But I stand in your presence, I receive your full forgiveness. I receive your favor. The fatted calf was a special occasion. Every time I do that, it is a special occasion in God's heart towards me. He goes, Mike, this is beautiful. I delight in showing you mercy. I delight when you, of your own free will, acknowledge that you've done wrong and you receive my love. I delight in this. It's a special occasion. He calls everyone to be merry. Misty, I'm going to have you come up, if you would. I'm going to lead a ministry time. Beloved, we need to break our agreement with lies. Lies about the heart of God. Lies about ourself. We're not a hopeless hypocrites. We're not finished. We haven't gone too far. Lies about the gospel. Well, the gospel gets me to heaven, but it can't keep me in the favor of God between now and heaven. We got to break our agreement with Lies we got to pronounce liberty to captives of shame. I want to invite you all to stand up if you would. I mean, everybody can apply this message. I mean, I've been preaching this for 40 years. I, I mean, tonight's my favorite night. Every time I preach it, it's my favorite time. I mean, I love this. I never outgrow this truth. But again, many of you are, I mean, this whole room, you're called to be shepherds of other people. You're called to disciple others. Maybe you're 14, you're going to disciple the 12-year-olds. Use this verse when you talk to those 12-year-olds. As youth pastors, preach this chapter once a month for the next year to your youth group. You don't really have to, but I I mean, don't do it once. Do it over and over and over where you get up and go, oh, no, Luke 15. Again, I tell you, it will change their life. Anyway, let's open our heart before the Lord. I'm going to have Misty just lead us for a moment and then I'm going to pray different prayers over folks. Lord, here we are before you. Oh, we love your heart. You're the God of gladness.
1: I knew what I was getting into when I called you.
0: Here's the Lord saying, I knew what I was getting into. I
1: knew what I was getting into when I said, "You I said it just the same. I knew what I was getting into when I stood like you. I knew what I was getting into, says the Lord.
0: The Lord says, I knew what I was getting into when I called you. I knew
1: what I was getting into when I called you. I said it just the same. and knew what I was getting into, and I still like you. I knew what I was getting
0: into, and
1: I am not sure. I'm gonna
0: ask kids to turn Misty's voice up over right there take the piano. The Lord says, I'm not shocked by your failure. you do. can trust. He's the God who runs after you, that embraces you, that kisses you. You can trust. That is the God and Father of the Lord Jesus. i keep on, keep on coming after you. I will keep on coming keep after on, you. Keep on, keep on, keep on, keep on, keep on. No matter what you do, I'm coming after you no because matter. I love you. Now I'd like across the room, those of you in the room are saying, I believe what you said, but I the enemy is attacking me on this subject. I have dreams in the night about God writing me off or I feel it all day. It's like I got a demon assigned to me. That doesn't mean the demons in you. I don't mean that, but this demon is harassing me. I feel constantly like I'm rejected and it's too, I've gone too far. And you say, I want prayer tonight. I want somebody to stand with me. If that's you, I want you to raise your hand up. Okay, raise your hand up high. Don't be ashamed to do that. It doesn't mean something's wrong with you. It means the enemy's coming after you and he's targeting you with this. Now, keep your hand up high because instead of coming forward, I'm going to ask the rest of the room to turn around. If you would, just go ahead and turn around the folks around you. And that guy or gal raising their hand, let's get two or three people. I'll pray. You could pray as well, but if you say, I don't want to pray out loud, that's okay. I'll do the praying if you don't want to pray out loud. But many of you, you pray the prayer in your heart. Let's break the power of this off of them. This is a lie. This is called the spirit of heaviness. Now, before we pray for you, I want you to renounce. I want you to say to the Lord, I renounce the lies of the enemy against me. The devil's a liar. I renounce these lies. Because you've got to break your agreement with the lie. Because nobody can pray and make you agree with God. And then the second thing you're going to say, Lord, I I believe you're the God of gladness. You're the God that delights in me. I believe it. And I receive it. I don't feel it, but I believe it. Just say that. You can whisper it to the Lord. You can say it out loud any way you want to. Now on the basis of you saying that to the Lord we're going to take authority over these accusing spirits. It's called the spirit of despair, the spirit of heaviness. In the name of Jesus, I rebuke the spirit of fear right now. I mean the spirit of of despair. I rebuke condemnation. I rebuke the spirit of heaviness right now and I command here this heart to be liberated in the grace of God. Be liberated. I pronounce liberty to the captives of shame. In the name of Jesus, walk in the freedom of the love of God. In the name
1: of Jesus.
0: In the name of Jesus.
1: In the name of Jesus. Be washed
0: by the love of God. Be
1: washed by the love of God. Be washed
0: by the word of God tonight.
1: Even tonight in the name of Jesus. Be washed
0: by the revelation of God's delight.
1: He delights in you. We stop the arrows of the devil.
0: He gives you the best robe, the ring. He gives you the shoes. He has the feast because of you. I crown you, I robe you.
1: I celebrate you. You are my delight in the name of Jesus.
0: You are my delight Stop this
1: accusation. Name of Jesus. In the name of Jesus. Take away the fog in the name of Jesus. Bring deliverance.
0: In the name of Jesus.
1: In the name of Jesus. Release
0: your fire, Lord. In the
1: name of Jesus.
0: Lord, release your manifest presence in this
1: room. Come like wind.
0: Come like fire, come like wind. like wind come like fire Lord I ask for your manifest glory to come on believers in this room release your manifest glory on everyone in this room asking for prayer Best glory
1: right now.
0: Lord, I ask you, release prophetic Just dreams time. that confirm your word was and wash them around. by the word. I ask for prophetic encounters Just even in the night. Lord, that you would reveal. Yourself in a special way to them. By your written word, but even prophetic dreams, I ask. your glory right now I ask you for the liberty I ask for a spirit of confidence I ask that today is a new day a new beginning now just push delete on yesterday's failures beloved you are the Lord's favorite one stand in his presence in the righteousness of Jesus say Lord I am the one you love and I love you that's who I am that's what I do